Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Hi, welcome back to Making Headway Podcast. This is Aaron. And this is Mariah. And we are here for episode three. Mariah and I have just launched the episodes, as you guys have probably noticed, and we wanted to do a quick check-in. How you feeling, Mariah? Oh boy, that is a loaded question these days. <laughs> How am I feeling? I'm exhausted. I have young kids and I am sleep deprived. And, you know, like COVID days, having kids at home a whole lot does not help the situation. But I've got a four month old and a four year old. And man, I'm tired. And it, I don't know how you feel. In fact, I do know how you feel because we've had this conversation. But like, there are days where I'm like, am I acting weird because I have a brain injury? Am I acting weird? Because I'm just exhausted because I'm a parent with young children. I just can't figure it out. But there's a whole lot of brain fog these days that I'm trying to fight my way through. Plus business ownership in the midst of all that. But don't get me started on that one. So it's been an interesting, an interesting few months for me, for sure. Um, How have you been doing? I'm curious because you have been transitioning back to work and that I'm sure has felt like quite an uphill battle in some senses. What's going on? It absolutely was at first. So I started in September and I had to start on a reduced schedule of 12 hours a week. And that felt like a ton. So I'm curious, I went back after three months. It, it, it was like basically the length of a standard US maternity leave for me. To, like it took me a long time to feel like I was ready to go back. And then I just transitioned back slowly. But in hindsight, I really wasn't ready. Do you feel like you were ready? I think I was. I'm glad that I got to have a slow schedule and starting at 12 hours a week. That was for the first month because I was having so many symptoms. I would come home and have to sleep every day and I was not really doing a whole lot. And then as time's gone on, I've been able to slowly increase, spending more time on the computer, doing more chart reviews, getting out there and being more social. And it's at a point now where I'm at 30 hours a week and next week I go up to 40 and I I do think I'm ready. I'm not as fast as I was. I have to work slower and that's okay. And I have to keep reminding myself that that's okay. And turning off that inner judge, that little voice in your head that just it's not a nice voice just no. always telling you, you can do more, you can be better. That's it's the devil on really, the shoulder, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's been my work. Yeah. That's really been where the majority of therapy is now. And who knows, is that brain injury? Because I was doing that before. Yeah. I feel like we'll always ask that question. But did you feel yeah. prepared to go back? I mean, did you feel like you had the tools you needed to like function in your workplace again? I felt as prepared as I could. And that goes to my speech therapist. I didn't realize that speech is so much more than just talking and swallowing. As my role as a nurse, I really see speech coming in, they do a swallow eval, they give a patient a diet and that's it. So for me, I never realized that I had speech needs, but it's that higher executive function which makes us want to bring on a speech therapist. And we actually have Emily Overbaugh today. She's with us from Thrive Speech, and she is going to talk to us a little bit about her role in the brain injury realm and what she does for therapy. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited (laughs) to be here. 
So I don't really remember. I mean, I was just talking to someone today about how I don't remember who I saw in the first days post release from the hospital, but I must have seen a speech pathologist. What do you do when someone starts with you? Jog my memory because I don't remember anything. <laughs> well, it de- it depends what setting you're looking at. So from an acute care hospital, patients can go anywhere from an inpatient rehab hospital to an outpatient clinic to home therapies to, to a um, variety of locations that a patient can wind up. And I happen to work primarily in outpatient therapies. So my patients come to me anywhere from a few days or weeks after their injury, all the way to months or years after their injury. So the first thing I do with the patient is just a really thorough interview about what's holding them back on a daily basis, What, um, depending again where they are in their course of injury. So if it's an early patient, I'll ask them first and foremost about their symptoms, physical symptoms, mm-hmm. because things like headaches and sleep deprivation and anxiety and trauma, all of those things can have such a profound impact on our cognitive functioning. How do we concentrate or remember if we didn't sleep the night before, or if we have such a splitting headache that it takes all of your energy just to lift your head up off of the bed. So the first thing I usually tackle with patients is what kind of symptoms they have and what providers do they have on board that are helping with those symptoms. So if they're having really debilitating headaches, you know, connecting them with the right person, or if they're really struggling with sleep, again, connecting them with the right person. So before we even get to my evaluation, I kind of get the lay of the land and what they're experiencing because every patient is so different. Makes sense. What are some types of things that you see? How would someone know they need you? So a lot of patients complain of sort of general loss of sharpness. Um, A lot of patients use the term fogginess, but specifically patients might complain about memory difficulty, things ranging from forgetting things that are coming in the future, like upcoming appointments, or forgetting things about what recently happened to them, or as you mentioned, like people that you've met in the in the recent days since your injury. Other patients complain of difficulty attending to a specific thing or attending to something for a long period of time. Patients might complain of difficulty finding words or stringing their sentences together the way they might have done more efficiently before. And then some patients have what we call executive function difficulty. And that's really what we look at as our higher level cognitive function. So our ability to plan, organize, set goals for ourselves, and monitor our own behavior. So depending on the type of brain injury, I see some patients really struggling with just managing their day-to-day tasks, and that can be from a variety of reasons. So we look across cognition and communication, and then as you mentioned, speech and swallowing. But if they've been through a hospital, typically the chances are that they at least have uh, they were discharged on a safe swallowing diet. Hopefully um, that's so, been checked on. 
<laughs> hopefully. Yeah. But a part of a thorough evaluation for, for any brain injury patient, at least patient with a brain injury, excuse me, is to um, at least screen and make sure that 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 they're on a safe diet and they're not having any difficulty swallowing. So you can see it really ranges. We, we mm. look at a variety of things. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I have a question about the baselines that you look for. Erin and I have talked about this a little bit. For me, when I was going through the sort of battery of tests as an outpatient, people were checking on, you know, my executive function, my, you know, whether I was adding correctly, whether I was... Mm-hmm recalling words correctly, I scored on the tests, the, like all within the range where you're supposed to, but I still didn't feel like I was where I was pre-accident. And I wonder, like, how do you check on that? Is there a way? I, I don't know that it was meant to be overlooked, but it definitely for me was something that I felt like I, you know, like I passed, but I wasn't where I was, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's uh, from a clinician standpoint, the tests and the batteries that were offered often don't reflect the variety of needs and complaints that our patients have. So my philosophy is always that a good clinical assessment includes something standardized or formal, as well as the patient's report. Actually, the most important piece is the patient's report about what functioning, what they're having difficulty doing on a daily basis. That is the number one report that I care about. I was able to do X efficiently before, and now I'm not able to do that now. And then the third thing is just clinical observation, you know, taking my experience and observing the patient and how they interact with their environment. And sometimes that shows you things that you can't see on a test. So just to kind of clearly recap that the three things that I look for is number one, the patient's report of their perceived deficits and their goals for therapy. Number two, how I observe as a clinician, them interacting with their environment and, you know, how they're attending and remembering with me. And then the third thing is selected formal assessments that are important, but they're not the whole picture. Mm -hmm. That was the approach that worked really well. I think in my therapy was my speech therapist talked to me a long time before doing any testing, really got an idea of what was different in life now, how was I before, and she did do tests, and those were really revealing because it, for me, showed it's not my memory that was the issue. It was my ability to pay attention for long mm-hmm. periods of time because my brain would get so cognitively fatigued, I just couldn't keep up. And knowing that really helped me at work because there's strategies you can do for that. Mm-hmm. So you guys just offer such a wealth of knowledge of things that I don't think a lot of other people are looking for. Yeah, I think you made such a great point there about attention, the relationship between attention and memory. Attention is a huge overlooked area Mm -hmm. of what we do, but it has such wide ranging impacts on your ability to remember and your ability to organize yourself and solve problems. If you can't at the minimum, stay focused on something for a long period of time, it really does impact a lot of other things. And to your point, you may just think that you're 
forgetful or not sharp, but a speech pathologist really helps you kind of delve into it a little more as it sounds like you had an excellent therapist who really helped you understand what was really underlying the difficulty that you were having on a daily basis. And I really strongly feel that that's our role to help people first and foremost, just be aware and understand what's going on with them. And that I think is really empowering for people to have that understanding and then go from there in That's their recovery. A really Absolutely. good point. It just people understanding, you know, what's going on with them and and stepping back from sort of what they're in the midst of and identifying issues. And I know everybody has a different recovery. Mine, I think I almost wasn't quite ready to see a speech pathologist when I did because I was in the thick of other things and uh you know at different points in my recovery I think I could have benefited from it because I think I saw my speech pathologist probably days after I was released from the hospital mm-hmm. in the midst of brain fog and clearly pretty tough recovery because like I said I have very little memory of those days but a couple months after I was in a very different place transitioning back to work and the executive function piece really would have benefited me at that time because I was realizing I wasn't organized. I wasn't, um, I would walk into rooms and be like, how did I get here? And what am I doing here? (laughs) Um, that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, days after release from the hospital, I was just kind of, I was in it. I wasn't able to identify what my issues were because I was just trying to get through the day to day. And it was interesting too. the speech therapist pointed out that anything that wasn't going 100% before the injury, like for me, my attention could easily be distracted, but I had coping strategies. After the injury, though, those coping strategies didn't work as well. And it kind of dialed up those kind of baseline deficiencies. And it was something new to try to manage and deal with. So when you see people that have new deficits, uh, are there like one set of strategies is going to work? I'm assuming it's pretty individualized, but how does that part work? It is individualized. And I mean, the the best kind of therapy is, is tailored to the person. But I think the challenge for us as clinicians is to differentiate what might have been there before and what's something new and what's an exacerbation of something that was there before. But I think, you know, when we focus on the what the patient is coming and telling us, that's why a test, that's when the test does take a backseat, right? Because maybe I tested your attention before your injury and it was kind of borderline and I might say, you know, oh, we, we need need to work on this. But, you know, that's just you as a person and you had coped with it and you had developed your own strategies for that. So I think really listening to our patients allows us to individualize. And as far as strategies go specifically, it's, again, pretty situationally based. So attention can look like a lot of different things. I mean, there's various types of attention, but there's various levels of difficulty of things that we attend to. So anything from just sitting and watching a television show for 30 minutes versus, you know, charting on patients, both require attention, but some obviously require more and different types of attention. So it really does come down to the patient. 
that answers your question. And, Mm -hmm. and what they're telling me is new because I didn't know them before this. So I, I lit, I try to listen to what they're saying is new and unusual for them. Yeah. Are there any tips you could give for someone who's listening to this and wondering, well, you know, I didn't think I had an issue, but maybe I do need to see a speech pathologist for, you know, any of the things that you cover, like anything that they should look for that might tip them off? Yeah. I mean, I'm generally of the mindset that if you have had a brain injury, it would be beneficial to at least have a screening or have a meet uh, to meet a speech pathologist to know that they can be a part of your care team and kind of just have that resource available. But I think everybody knows themselves the best. So if you're feeling like just vague feelings of something's not quite right with my thinking, or I maybe I feel like I'm thinking a little slowly, or um, maybe I'm not problem solving as easily. So daily tasks maybe are taking you a lot longer. So as we've gone on, people don't use checkbooks that much anymore. But an example that a lot of my patients give, my older patients might say things like balancing my checkbook takes like a few hours. (laughs) And that could be unusual for them. Other things to look for is just memory tends to be the big thing that people notice, you know, if they're missing appointments or people are saying things like, well, remember, we talked about that this morning, or we talked Mm -hmm. about that the other day. Don't you remember? (laughs) And um, Uh, I think that my husband repeats that to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so sometimes people aren't very kind about it, you know, and so it can be glaringly obvious, but sometimes it's just kind of like people saying like, oh, yeah, you know, we just talked about that. And so it's these kind of subtle ways. But like I said, I, I think that it really the patient knows themselves the best and they know if they just don't quite feel like themselves that something else may need to be investigated. If they haven't met a speech pathologist yet, that might be the right time. Yeah. I was going to say, it almost sounds like instead of calling you a speech therapist, you should be like a thinking therapist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's usually. So if you're billing an insurance company, we say cognitive communicative therapy. We have to include both. But sometimes we'll say cognitive therapy. But usually with patients, I will use the term thinking skills because I just think thinking is a much clearer term, but why don't we call you that? That I think that would be a good idea because speech does not even come close to covering it. (laughs) Well, it's funny, you know, I work, um, I've done some acute care too. And as, as you mentioned, we'll do swallowing evaluations and I'll come in and say, I'm, I'm from speech pathology, but I'm here to evaluate your swallowing. And people are like, why? It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> confusing. So, right? I mean, they just landed on one term, so we'll just go with it. But I think that's something, honestly, that people don't know is that it is an umbrella term for mm-hmm. all of these other things and all of these other things that could benefit their recovery. I feel like that does not help with sort of like this misperception and like the ability for people to identify who they might talk to if they're feeling like they have some of these issues. Erin, I'm curious, I have an answer for myself, but do you have things that you do where you notice like your brain fatigue or like that your executive function is not where quite where it should be? Do you have like something that like tips you off 
Absolutely. Grocery stores is a big one. Yeah. The I didn't realize how much advertising like sinks into your psychology. <laughs> you get pulled all over the place in that store and I mm-hmm. come out of there exhausted. Yeah. Like I actually get a physical reaction of I need to leave this place. Yeah. And I didn't understand it until mm-hmm. talking to my neurologist and speech therapist that that mm-hmm. isn't something wrong with me. It's not a new anxiety I have towards stores. It's just you're completely overwhelmed. Yeah. I just noticed recently, actually, so for listeners who don't know me, I love to cook. And I've noticed recently that if I'm especially tired, which is all the time now because four month old at home, I have difficulty if I'm in the kitchen cooking multiple recipes at the same time. Normally, I do a really good job of saying, okay, so for recipe A, I need to do this and this step. And then for recipe B, I need to do this step and then back to recipe A and then recipe C. And so if you're cooking a like an elaborate meal, you have to reorder the steps of each recipe. You blend them together so that it all comes out. When I'm really sleep deprived and post-injury, Mariah, I have trouble ordering everything so that everything's prepared and ready yes. at the same time. It's so much more of a struggle. Yeah, it, yeah, and I, I, I just too. noticed that recently. Um, again, sleep deprivation is clearly top of mind for me, but, mm-hmm. but, yeah. but it's different than it was pre-accident for sure. Yeah. And something with work is toggling between systems or toggling Mm -hmm. between screens to try to get the information. By the time I get to one screen, I may have forgotten the trail that I was on and now I'm on (laughs) another bunny trail. So um, that's probably something you have a lot of strategies for, Emily. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking of all of those examples, you might just think, oh, the grocery store wipes me out. But Little did you know, you know, maybe it's the stimulation of the grocery store. Maybe it's the sustaining your attention or at work. Maybe it's the divided or alternating attention of going back and forth from two screens. Those are really high level cognitive skills that can really be addressed in therapy. And as you mentioned, have strategies that go along with them. So the major or the big things that we tend to recommend is, you know, definitely reducing environmental stimulation and distractions. I mean, particularly in the beginning, but it's something that can benefit you as through the course of your recovery and really creating an environment that's friendly to you and where you're at with your cognition. So maybe having, you know, the kids definitely out of the kitchen while you're doing that task of, mm-hmm. of you know, the really complicated sequencing and attention that, mm-hmm. that is required. A lot of times, the second thing we, we tend to recommend is really looking at time, you know, how much time is this going to take me and how can I plan? Just to back up a little bit, one of the formats that I really like is called the goal, plan, do and review. So you set a goal, like my goal is to tackle this really complicated recipe and then kind of mentally or writing, literally plan it out. But think about things like what, you know, do I have all the supplies that I need? Do I have all the ingredients? How can I make sure the kids are kind of taken care of while I'm doing this? What do I foresee potentially being barriers or potentially stressing me out or exacerbating my symptoms. And then you do the activity, you you do, you plan to do it, you do it, and you kind of monitor how you're doing throughout, how your symptoms are, taking rest and breaks appropriately. And then 
when you're done, you know, review kind of how it went. You know, gosh, I I wish maybe I would have had all my ingredients out ahead of time. Then I wouldn't have been turning in the kitchen and, you know, really like changing positions and exacerbating my headaches, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing, you know? So I think one of the biggest things that we stress in terms of strategies is thinking about things with a little more forethought than maybe you had to do before and constantly learning from your environment and either making the change then or learning for the next time that you go to do a recipe or go to the grocery store or any of those type of things. I think that evaluate step is an important one that gets overlooked a whole bunch. I mean, everybody's just sort of busy all the time these days. And so you don't normally stop and reflect on how you did moving through a sort of a sequence of tasks. So that's a great piece of advice and one that I will take you up on tonight when I'm cooking dinner. (laughs) That was one of the biggest skills that I learned that I'd never done before. I would never reflect back on how something went and what tired me out and what type of rest it takes to restore from that. That was not something I ever knew to do. And I can't imagine living without that skill now. Like that's everything. And it could be valuable for anybody. Digging out of that cognitive fatigue area and Mm -hmm. cognitive fatigue fog in your brain, you have to understand what it is that causes it and how you can rest to get out of it. Right. And I would venture to guess that you got more efficient with that over time. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. maybe in the beginning, it took a lot of effort to put that plan and review how you did. But I won't speak for you, but I'm assuming or hoping that over time, it's become a more natural Mm -hmm. habit in your life and more what we the term we use is more internalized and you're able to adapt and use it in different situations. That's my hope for you. But it sounds like you had a good therapist. It's true. Yeah, Yeah. it was a hard skill. When I was at home, she would have me pretending like I was at work. So I'd have my schedule for the day because that's what I do at work. What activities need to get done? How much time do we think they're going to take? And then scheduling rest. Rest was Mm -hmm. an appointment. It wasn't something you skipped. Do you, have you been scheduling yourself for rest at work, Erin? I have been. I haven't needed to do it as much. Today, I, like when I first started, I was every hour and a half having to take like a 15, 20 minute break. Now it's probably like five to 10 minutes, but I am trying really hard to feel where I'm at. Yeah. Because I don't need to go on to that next patient if I need to take a deep breath or go, you know, a big thing for me has been going down to the chapel and just deep breathing for 10 minutes just to quiet it all back down uh, to reset. And that's, you know, just listening to yourself. I wish I had been more um, thoughtful about my return to work. And I I mean, I think part of it was I didn't really have a support that was pointing out that I was just throwing myself back into work and not doing it, you know, in a way that was conscious of what I was really doing to myself, I guess. yeah. So I you appreciate what you don't know. Yeah, exactly. I appreciate having had the chance to watch you go through it, Erin. And not that I can redo it, but I certainly can stop and reset the way I work now. And I, I do have to work a little differently now than I did before. And part of that actually is making sure that my coworkers are aware that I work differently now. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. been huge. 
just letting people know what's going on because everyone every day oh you look great it doesn't look like anything happened yeah yeah the eternal you look great (laughs) (laughs) thank you but things are a little different in my brain yeah so emily i'm curious are there any exercises that you recommend for people who are trying to cope with that sort of task sequencing thing other than applying it to your own life i i didn't have any guidance on that front so i'm curious So our main goal is to really embed strategies into what you do. Mm -hmm. So we, and really, as we mentioned with the the planning and evaluating yourself, really focusing on getting your strategies to come more naturally. Mm -hmm. So in terms of sequencing, you know, people, and it's really individual to the patient. So I don't know how you do, but some people are more visual people and some people feel like they're more verbal people. So people can really benefit from verbal mediation of tasks. So sometimes saying out loud what the steps are, mm-hmm. um, or if they're a more visual person, you know, having the steps in a very obvious laid out way and not be toggling back and forth or not be, you know, I think the more simple and straightforward the information is, the better. So I think it really comes in that planning ahead of time. The to-do list takes on a whole new level of importance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking a lot about internal strategies, you know, things we do mentally to help our attention and organization and planning. But there's a lot of external things that we take for granted, things like to-do lists, notebooks, post-its, those sort of things. But also the age of smartphones has been wonderful in terms of compensatory strategies. A lot of times with patients in a, in a session, I'll be just showing them the features of their smartphone <laughs> that can help them. Anything from a voice memo to a written memo to, um, I don't know if I could say the name, but the, the woman in the phone that will do things <laughs> yeah, for we, you. We can talk about Siri. Actually, I have a funny, I have a funny Siri story. Um, I was about to take my four-year-old out on a bike ride. He's got training wheels very proud of himself and we're like leaving the garage and he was like mom did you go need your sourdough bread and I was like oh thank you for reminding me I need to go need the bread and he goes I'm like Siri I tell you when to need the bread because I I, I tell Siri to remind me to need my bread yeah it, <laughs> but, I mean I do that as well right mm-hmm. so um it's these are things that can benefit all of us many times our hands are tied you have two kids so it might be like hey Siri can you remind me to do this and if somebody doesn't know about that what a powerful tool you have with you all the time yeah she's handy Um, (laughs) she's very handy she's (laughs) very handy and she's consistent Mm -hmm. so and very um, polite too which is she is is. (laughs) but it in terms of exercises just you know kind of circling back to that the research really lies in these sort of things what how can we cope and manage as our brain is healing and how can we deal with these things and and work through a little more efficiently and effectively so the other app that i use for to do's just worth noting for anybody looking for a resource and erin you might actually emily i'm sure you have some Mm -hmm. too but todoist has been really helpful in terms of like organizing different to-do lists and setting reminders for them and telling me when i've forgotten something so that's nice yeah yeah got me one i didn't know that one yeah it's a good one do you use anything, Erin? I'm curious. I use my Google Calendar a lot. Mm. 
all the reminders. Mm-hmm. That's where I kind of based everything. And it ha- you can have a task list in there too. Erin yeah. even sets Google reminders for me now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I find those ones that cross multiple family members can be really helpful mm-hmm. for my patient's Google calendar. There's one that's been recommended to me, an avocado app, it's called. Down to like a grocery list that someone can add to as Mm -hmm. the person's in the grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. So I think just tapping into what our phones have to offer and, you know, many, many people have them, but there's still options for people who don't too, Mm -hmm. you know, good old fashioned pen and paper works just as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have notebooks at work because I can't always have like my phone and type fast enough. So Mm -hmm. I do have to take note notes a lot. And then noise canceling headphones has been a godsend because I work in a chaotic environment. Even in my office, it's loud. So just to be able to drown out everything around me because I'm so distracted by everything around me that that helps a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Mm -hmm. Emily. So Aaron and I both have partners who have had to adapt to our post-accident or post-injury needs. Do you have any advice for caregivers or loved ones who live with people who are adapting to all of this in terms of how to cope with us, how to put up with us maybe? I don't know. This is something that people ask a lot because usually someone – you know, comes with someone to their session. And these things can be a little bit tense. Your thinking skills, that's a big deal. So it can be a little bit emotional. um, And people could get frustrated, for instance, if they have to repeat themselves a lot. So I usually tell people, you know, I, I usually involve caregivers in the conversation directly, you know, kind of mediating the conversation where the patient really says, what they need, what helps you, or what have we learned in therapy helps you. And let's talk to your loved one about how they can best support that. So for instance, if, you know, you're very sound sensitive or light sensitive, you know, your loved one can, if they don't know that, they just see sort of like the reaction to that or the negative outcome of that, but they don't know how you got there. They might not know how to help you kind of cut that off in the beginning. So it might be a, some, something as simple as when you're having a conversation, making sure that they turn the TV off and directly face you and and listen to you. And and I, I'm often encouraging people, loved ones, not to take it personally. So that is um, key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So sometimes someone might in, incorrectly interpret needing to repeat themselves as the person wasn't listening or the person didn't care mm-hmm. about what they were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when in fact, it's never, you know, I shouldn't say never or always, but it's rarely intentional. It's not a personal thing. It's part of the path of recovering that they're on. And in fact, your repetition of what you said or your restatement of what you said could be that just little extra boost they need to process. And now they remembered it and you've given them that confidence and that boost they need like, oh, I can do this. So I think the biggest thing is just not taking it personally, you know, and trying to be as patient as possible and just keeping the lines of communication open. What do you need from me? How can I best support you? And I think it works both ways too. Like, you know, sometimes needing to repeat myself gets a lot, you know, or sometimes I feel 
frustrated that you're not as organized as you were before and I I need a minute too. And that's okay too. It's a family injury when it happens. Mm -hmm. So everybody's dealing with changes, unexpected changes. That's a good way of putting it. It's a family injury because it really is. I mean, it's not just the person who suffers from the brain injury. It's everybody's having to cope with it in their own different way too. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I find I often don't retain information when I have brain fatigue, but I don't always pick up on the moments that I have brain fatigue. So I think part of it is me being able to pick up on it and say to the person talking to me, I'm sorry, I'm, I've got brain fog right now. I either need you to help me by repeating or write something down for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also my husband in particular, I think he knows now when he sees like the sort of like brain fog look that I get at the end of a day that he's he's got to like slow down for a second and repeat or help me process enough so that I'll retain the information. So it's kind right. of on both people, really. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of this stems around understanding your boundaries and when you've kind of hit that limit Mm -hmm. and being able to vocalize that in a way that's not hurtful, but just informative that I've kind of reached it now. You know, can that go in an email rather than the 10 minute discussion in the hall? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people want to help. That's what I've been finding. Like as you tell people what's going on, they want to help you. They don't want to see you struggle. Yeah. That B word, the boundaries, Erin and I both have struggled with. And I think, you know, had I not gone through my brain injury, I would not be where I am in terms of setting my own boundaries because Mm -hmm. I was always like a yes person or an overload the plate person. But now being able to recognize the limit and vocalize when I'm reaching it or vocalize what I need from somebody has been a really important lesson for sure. Yeah. And I think that takes time. You know, it takes a lot of self-study, a lot of just kind of acceptance and processing of what's happened. And then once that kind of sets in, then kind of, you know, learning how you learn and how you think, and then you can relay it to other people. But having some help through that process of learning how you think and learning how you process, I think is very beneficial to getting to the point where then you can communicate with loved ones, friends, coworkers to say, this is what I need. This is the boundary that I have to draw. Maybe I can't go to that game for an hour and maybe I can only make it a half an hour. And it's not because I don't want to hang out with you. It's because tomorrow I'm going to feel terrible, (laughs) you know? And I think that journey of just understanding what's happening to you and learning how to cope and strategize, then you can kind of get other people on board to support you. And as you said, people want to help and, and they want to understand and support in, in any way they can, because that's generally the nature of people I find. It takes a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. So definitely don't beat yourself up. I'm preaching to the choir when I say that because I beat myself up all the time, but (laughs) it takes so much patience to figure out where your boundaries are and they change. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what worked yesterday might not work today because you didn't sleep well or you had some pain overnight or you did too much yesterday on the computer or thinking. Mm -hmm. It's tough. It's hard. Yeah. Something that comes up a lot is this 
idea of the new normal. And I wonder, I mean, you must see people grappling with that all the time, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom for anybody who's realizing that what they dealt with pre-brain injury is not where they are now and how to come to terms with it and be okay with it? Yeah, my, you know, the first thing I tell people is really to just be gentle on themselves. This is not something they voluntarily brought on themselves. This is something that happened to them. So again, you know, taking that part out of it where it's there's blame or someone's fault. This is not your fault that it happened. This happened to you. And so be kind and gentle to yourself because, you know, you, you are going to have to be your own best advocate and your own best cheerleader through this. Um, You'll have a care team along the way, but you're the one getting up and out every day and dealing with these symptoms. So I think just starting with gentleness and kindness is, is really important. And then I, you know, you bring up a great point because people really do grapple with comparing their pre-injury selves to what they're dealing with now. And I really encourage people to look at compensating and coping, not as I never had to do it like this before. This isn't how I do things and look at it as this is how I'm going to get to my end now. You know, if I struggle and suffer through trying to do it the way, quote unquote, I've always done it, I'm you know, maybe not going to get to the result that I want. But if I try to learn a new or different way to do it, maybe it's not the way that I did it before, but maybe I will still accomplish my goal and still get to where I wanted to be. So to that point, I think it's a process of getting there, but I think just being open-minded about not necessarily learning different and new ways to get to the same goal Mm -hmm. that you can get to the same goal that you did before. It just may be different, Mm -hmm. a different path to get there. And that's okay. You know, just be kind of patient and accepting of yourself and where you're at. And it may not be, you know, to the point of it always changing, it may not be always the way you need to do things. But right now, if you can meet yourself where you're at, and you can identify the needs that you have and how to best work with them, you know, that might be a really positive step in your recovery. I think it's been a positive step for life. Just Mm -hmm. what other time do you have to evaluate how you think and how you do things? We get so entrenched. It's nice to learn some of these new strategies. That's true. Mm -hmm. Emily, I know we're kind of nearing the end now. Was there anything else that we didn't touch on that you were hoping we get out there? Any other wisdom to share? You have so um, much. (laughs) I think that idea of being really an advocate for yourself is, is a hard one, but it's a realistic one. You know, in today's kind of healthcare world, us as providers, we're asked to do a lot more with a lot less time. And that's not necessarily fair to our patients. So, you know, if you feel like something's not right, if you feel a symptom that's just really persisting that you are not, you know, able to deal with, um, it's really impacting you and burdening your daily life. I think it's so, so important to speak up to your healthcare providers and really tell them, you know, what's going on and, and get that help that you need. There's resources in every area where people have symptoms of concussions or any type of brain injury. There's resources out there. It's just a matter of being directed to them. And I think the second part to that is 
really to find healthcare providers that you truly connect with. And I know that sounds fluffy, but in reality, I really do think that therapeutic relationship is so important that you have healthcare providers that you trust, that listen to you, and that encourage you. You know, there's some really nice research um, in some areas of brain injury that talk about just the messages that you get at the beginning of recovery. Are they positive and encouraging or are you, you know, f- have this feeling like you're never going to feel better? We're learning that our messages or we have learned that our messages to our patients can have a pretty big impact on the course of their recovery. So I think that if you're feeling like you're not connecting with your healthcare provider, it's okay to, to seek somebody maybe that you click with a little bit more and there's nothing wrong with that. So I really just always try to empower people to, to know that and to, as I said, you know, be an advocate for themselves. That's really good advice. And I I think a good way of looking at it is if you were sitting in, you know, a room with someone you love a whole lot, helping them along the way with their recovery, your parent, your partner, your spouse, your child, would you speak up on their behalf about something? Definitely. Uh, I mean, I think about my kids, like even just go to going to the pediatrician with a child, you have to be the one to ask the questions. You have to be the one to insist if something doesn't seem right, that it get the attention that it need. But often we overlook ourselves mm-hmm. and don't speak up for ourselves when we're working with our medical practitioners. And you really do have to trust your own intuition about your body. Right, right. You do. Because I think sometimes people push it aside, you know, I should be able to do this task or I Mm -hmm. should be able to go back to work full time and not have an issue. I look fine. People are saying I'm fine. You know, you get these messages that you're fine or normal, your test is normal or you look normal, but in reality, your function isn't what you know it to be. Mm -hmm. So I think that's um, just trusting that instinct is, is really important. Yeah. Taking care of yourself. Yeah, yeah. And actually, if it's okay to add one more thing, I I think that rest activity balance is just hugely important. We touched on it a few times, but that is important from the early stages all the way through recovery with in terms of just knowing those limitations and knowing that you want to push yourself, you want to get out there and re-engage in the activities that you desire to do, but you also need to take those cues from your body that it's time to rest. And then, you know, kind of learning from experience as you go along, like, oh, last night that might've been too much. And really just allowing yourself to strike that really healthy balance is going to benefit you tremendously. And again, that's something that I tend to share with my patients pretty frequently. Yeah. And probably a good idea not to let go of that for a long, long time. I mean, I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm two years post injury and I still need that. So, I, you know, nothing wrong Absolutely. with a little rest. <laughs> no, we no. all need it and in life. We push ourselves to be so busy and we mm-hmm. don't have to be. Yeah, we don't. We don't. And if we build a good support system around us, they're going to follow suit. And maybe you set a good example in this day and age of just like, taking care of yourself and your mind and your body and, you know, how that can, you can see the benefits of that throughout your life. And Mm -hmm. I think that applies beyond brain injury for sure. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for sharing your wisdom. For those who are interested in following Emily or keeping track of what she's up to, you can find her on Instagram at Thrive Speech Path. And 
on her website, thrivespeechpathology.com. Anything else that you want to share about how people can catch up with you, Emily? Did I cover it? <laughs> Did I yeah, get it? <laughs> those are the two main ways. Feel free to, you know, bounce anything off. The American Speech and Hearing Association website has a function where you can type in your zip code and search for providers in your area. So that's a really helpful tool to use. So that's asha.org and they can really direct, or you can see a list of providers and many providers have their specialties listed. So that can be helpful too. That's awesome. um, To see, but yeah, certainly if you are in need of any direction in terms of where to go to look for help from a speech pathologist, I'm happy to direct people in the right path. Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you, you so Emily. much. So and thank happy you. to have a speech therapist on so early on. It's yeah. such a needed, needed, Absolutely. needed therapy. And a good Thinking reminder that, it, that it's a little bit of a misnomer. There's way more to it than just the speech. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And to yeah. our listeners, thank you for joining us on our third episode. And please stay with us and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com.